Lord, thank you so much, God. We do praise your name. We thank you, Lord, that one day we will be with you. And we thank you that as you have risen from the dead, you raise us up, Lord, into new life. And help us, God, tonight to understand, to live that, God, to even understand that as you are involved in our lives, God, that you do take care of us, Lord. And nothing comes to a surprise to you, Lord, but you, you know us through and through and you have orchestrated everything in our life and even at this moment whatever we're going through whatever is happening in our lives God thank you that you are such a God so powerful and sovereign that you are in control and help us to rest in that help us to trust in you in that right now so I ask God that you bless your word Speak to us again. Anoint it with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 24th in 1786, long time ago, a man named of Thomas Cook, he was actually a minister, a Methodist minister, a missionary. He was a big promoter of missions. Well, him and a small group of missionaries left England on a ship to Nova Scotia which is in Canada, to establish a mission station there. But unfortunately, the ship ran into bad weather, and what was supposed to take one month, it actually took three months to reach land. Well, the damaged ship, because of the storm and the seas and everything, it actually ended up 2,000 miles off course in the Caribbean, limping into St. John's Harbor on the island of Antigua. Thomas uh, knew that on that island there was another missionary. His name was John Baxter, another famous missionary. And when they finally made it ashore, uh, he went to ask someone to see if maybe he could find John Baxter. Well, he happened to run into this man who was swinging a lamp in the early hours of the morning. And guess who it was? It was John Baxter himself. That was actually December 25th, Christmas morning, and John Baxter was on his way to call people to come to Christmas Day service. And, well, the shipwrecked missionaries thought, well, let's join in here with the work. So they helped out, and that day they helped the pastor here, John Baxter, do three services, and they did three to accommodate all the crowds. Well, when they saw what the Lord was doing there on that island, this all confirmed to them, these missionaries, that the storm now was actually what they call, and I, uh, this is the words that he wrote, the providential ordering of God. So you know what? They all decided to stay there and help plant the work there. Thirteen years later, it was reported that there was 13 churches planted, 23 preachers had been raised up, and 11,700 people had been saved. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how a debilitating storm, which seemed so bad, actually brought the missionaries to where God needed them? That is what I call a divine arrangement. A Tryon Edwards once said, All the world's ends, arrangements, changes, disappointments, hopes, and fears are without meaning, if not seen and estimated by eternity. I love that. 
you guys. I think, I think that's awesome. Well, I give you this story and this quote because we, as we return here to our study in the book of Luke, we find some events that actually lead up to Jesus' death on the cross. And, and it seems crazy. It seems like, what? But they were all actually sovereignly orchestrated, already planned out by God. They were all sovereign arrangements. And that's the title of our message tonight, Sovereign Arrangements. And we're going to be looking today, studying Luke chapter 22 from verse 1 through 13. 1 through 13. And we're going to see three things here. We're going to uh, basically see uh, uh, three things happening. First of all, the Passover. This is our outline. Number one, the Passover. Number two, the plotting. And then number three, the preparation. The preparation. So that's our outline for tonight. The Passover, the plotting, and the preparation. Well, let's go ahead and... um, Begin here with number one, the Passover, the Passover. Now here we're going to only cover verse one, verse one, and uh, take a look at it now. Luke chapter 22, verse one. It says here, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And we'll stop right there. We want to just take a look at this for a moment. We begin here in this chapter. Luke is writing how now the time came near. The time had come. For the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, it was Passover. The Passover celebration now had come upon the calendar here in this account of Jesus. Now, if you remember, the Passover commemorates when Israel was freed from the bondage of Egypt with all the plagues, right? with that last plague that happened. And God freed Israel from Egypt. You remember how in this last plague, the death angel flew across the land of Egypt and the firstborn of every Egyptian passed away. They died, except for the Jewish houses, which they sacrificed a lamb, took the blood, put it on the doorpost, and the angel would pass over. So that's what this day commemorates. That act really was this final plague that helped Pharaoh finally said, okay, you guys can go, right? There's 10 plagues, and Pharaoh's going back and forth, but finally this, the most severe, caused Pharaoh to let them go. So Passover was, was a day when the death angel passed over the Jews, and this was the uh, Passover was commemorating that when they were freed from the bondage of Egypt. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was actually observed seven days after. It was, um, if you remember, um, they had to leave Egypt quickly, so there wasn't enough time to let the bread rise when they cooked for food on their journey. So they would eat unleavened bread, uh, commemorating that time of them leaving Egypt and, and going into the wilderness, finally being free, heading for the promised land. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread really was a time to remember God's powerful work. That happened back then. Now, all of this that we're seeing here in verse 1, all of this, uh, past this Passover time, it was a national holiday. And all the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. Matter of fact, um, 
the Jewish commentator Josephus, he says that there was about a million people at this time crammed into the city of Jerusalem at this time. So it was a huge holiday. It was a national holiday, and everyone was required to come and celebrate Passover, honor God. So as we come to verse 1, and we're talking about the Passover, we're talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but specifically the Passover, this marks the coming of the last day of the life of Jesus. So that's why we're coming into this. That's why I want to talk about this for a moment, because this is the end of his life now. This marks the appointed time for Jesus to die on the cross. This time of the Passover which the Passover foreshadowed, right, the, the lamb that was sacrificed to save the Jews. This was God's sovereign arrangement for all of this to happen during this time. You know, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said that uh, Paul called Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then John the Baptist, if you remember, in John chapter 1, 29, he pointed to Jesus when he saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is it. This has been, been planned for a long time. This moment in time that all this would happen during the Passover. So here's what I want you to see here. God orchestrated the exact timing of when Jesus was to die for our sins as the Passover Lamb of God. That's what we're coming into here. That's what I want you to understand. This was God's sovereign arrangement. He orchestrated this exact timing. It was to happen during the Passover because Christ is to be the Passover Lamb, which the Passover Lamb back in Exodus was a foreshadow, was looking toward what Jesus would, would, would do in dying for our sins. You know, I, I think of how God had sent Jesus during the Roman time. Because the Romans, they had developed crucifixion into the worst type of torture, the worst type of death ever that anyone would do in the history of the world, that anyone would do to a human being. And this was the time God orchestrated for Jesus to come and die and suffer for our sins. So it's interesting, the timing in all of this. And so it was all prophesied, all planned from the foundation of the world, arranged by God for the pur purpose to purchase our salvation so Jesus would die in that way. So because of what you see here, just in verse 1, I want you to think about this for a moment. With what we see in this timing, understand and hold on in faith in whatever you're going through right now. Hold on in faith, for you know what? Nothing is a surprise to God. Even in the bad times, God's sovereign plan is being worked out, you guys. Your situation isn't like a surprise, that like God's like going, oh no, I didn't know this was going to happen. No, He knew ahead of time, and in His sovereign plan, He may have allowed some things, but God knew about what this would happen. And as a child of God, he's working things in your life so that it is not all bad, but he's actually working some good to it, right? All things work together for good. And get this, God knew about this even before you were born. Isn't that trippy to think about? 
So listen, God's timing may not be your timing, but God's timing is never bad timing. So hold on to that tonight. So we see this sovereign arrangement uh, happening here in this, just the Passover. All this is unfolding during the Passover. And then we see secondly here, the plotting, the plotting. And here we're going to cover verses 2 through 6. But first of all, Let's read verse 2. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, Luke tells us that it was during this time of the Passover now, the, the religious leaders, where you have listed here the chief priests. They're the head guys. They're the high priests. They're basically the Sadducees that we studied about. And the scribes, they're the experts in the law of Moses. They were like the lawyers, and most of them were Pharisees. So this is like, like the, the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders, the leaders of, of the Jews now. They were seeking, they were looking on how to put Jesus to death. Isn't that crazy? I mean, here's the spiritual leaders, the, the so-called holy men, and they're trying to find a way to murder Jesus, something's wrong there. I, I think that's so crazy. But in their plotting, in what they're trying to find, they, they feared the people. Jesus was so popular. Yeah, they, they feared that if they did something to Jesus, grabbed him in front of the people, the people would turn on them, and they would lose their power, their popularity. I think this is so sad, if you think about it. On, on one of the really the biggest, holiest holidays on the Jewish calendar, these religious leaders were plotting the greatest crime in history, the murder of Jesus. You know, there's an interesting thing about Passover. It's a time really of cleansing your heart. Uh, uh, really, two days before Passover, every family would go through this ritual. They would search the house for any piece of unleavened bread um, it's kind of like um think about an easter egg hunt you know like like the mom would hide un little pieces of of unleavened bread all throughout the house like 10 pieces and the kids were sent out to find them and and then they bring it to the father and father would collect all the pieces put them in a linen cloth tied up and then throw it out the front door to be burned the next day. It was just a ritual. It, it, it was really speaking about let's get rid of unleavened bread, unleavened, uh, unle uh, what, what, or, or leaven, I should say. Well, it was it's like a symbol of sin. So it's like oh, we got to get it out. So here's these spiritual leaders of Israel. They had ceremonial ceremonially cleanse their homes, but think about it, not their hearts. The first thing I want you to see is these spiritual leaders were plotting to commit murder while at the same time celebrating Passover. Isn't that crazy? You think, what? What? They're missing what this, this, this whole uh, holiday was about. And, and here it's supposed to be a, a holy holiday, yet, yet they're planning and plotting this murder. Years ago, I read about how the Memphis police were called in to break up a fight at a local Baptist church. Two women had got into an argument. One hit the other with an umbrella. Then, it, then, then a whole church jumped in. It turned into this full-on brawl. The sad thing was all of this 
happened, guess what? During the church service when they were taking communion. Isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. But this is a, the same thing going on. I mean, how hypocritical they are. But you know, we can do the same thing, can't we? We can, we can sit in church. We can at the same time enter, sit in church. We come to see God, but we entertain hateful thoughts and hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts. All the while raising our hands in worship, but we're raising the bitterness toward others. We can do the same. Let's be careful that when we come to church and we worship, when we see God, it's not just some ritual while we harbor evil things and wicked things in our own heart. Well, look at verse 3 now. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So, verse 6, he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in absence of the crowd. So, right when the religious leaders, I think they were at their peak of hatred of Jesus. They, they wanted to get at him. Well, along comes, guess who? Judas Iscariot. Uh, Iscariot, uh, commentators believe it's tied to where he lived. Iscariot kind of tied to, he lived in Kerioth, and so he's called Iscariot in that way. It could be that. That's why he's Judas Iscariot. But Judas comes along. And, and look what it says here in verse 3. Satan entered into Judas. Satan had already taken control of him and his heart to really be part of this plot to get Jesus murdered. And so here's Satan in Judas, were taking control of Judas. And we see here, Luke put, throws in there in verse 3, Judas was one number of the twelve. He was part of the disciples here. He's one of them. And so you know what? He was basically a perfect inside man. And so this was perfect for the religious leaders. They thought, wow, no way. This is, this is the guy. This is exactly what we needed. So he went, Judas, and conferred. He plotted with the chief priests and the officers there on how they might betray Jesus. How they can, they can catch Jesus with the crowd in the absence of the crowd, verse 6 talks about. And so Judas betrayed Jesus. He consented. Yeah, I'll be your man. I'll be the inside man. You, yeah, I'll do this for you. And he betrayed Jesus. Look, for, they gave him money. And we know it was 30 pieces of silver there. So the arrangement was made to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus and have him arrested. Now reading this, you might think, wait. Why would Jesus, Judas do this? I mean, he's, he's one of the 12. Haven't he been with Jesus all three years? We think about Peter, James, and John, and the others, Andrew. You know, these guys, they're, they're all for Jesus. There's women following Jesus, but how about Judas? What happened to him? How could he allow Satan to enter him and control him? Why would Jesus partake in this plotting? Why did he basically sell out Jesus? Well, we know from John chapter 12, verse 6, that he wasn't a, an honest guy, you know. 
In John 12, 6, it tells us that Judas was basically a thief. He was the treasurer. He would control. He was the accountant with all the tithes and what people gave. And he would basically be skimming off the top of the offering. So he was already compromising with wickedness and sin. We know from uh, John 6, 64, Judas was not really a true believer. I mean, Jesus knew with divine knowledge and with his knowledge being God that Judas would betray him. And so he knew Judas didn't really embrace Jesus totally, not like in faith, Peter, James, and John, the other disciples did. And we know here, as it says, Satan entered Judas. And so he was that perfect pawn for the devil's strategy to end Jesus's life. You know what I see? I see that perhaps Judas's greed was why he was even there as a disciple. You know, he, I think he, he felt like, well, here's Jesus. He's, he's the Messiah. I want to get on, on ground floor. I want to have an opportunity to be able to be part of the government. And I'll make money and I'll have a great life and all that kind of thing. And be a part of the new administration. And perhaps when it didn't happen and his expectations were all broken and dashed, he got disillusioned. And now he's like, it's time to get out. It's time to separate myself from all this. Take note, too, that a true believer cannot be demon-possessed. Paul is pretty clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and like verse 15, 16, around there, that darkness cannot be with light. So if you're a Christian, there's no way a demon can possess you. You can be oppressed, like attacked and in that way, but a demon cannot get in you. So we see Judas, he's really not of faith, and so it was easy for Satan to come in and use him as the pawn with all these reasons. So here's the second thing I want you to see. When Judas decided to cash out and get out, he sold Jesus out and sold his soul to do evil. That's what basically happened. When Judas decided to cash out, take the money, get out, he sold Jesus out and sold his soul to do evil. How sad is that? The Son of God was sold out, was betrayed for, for money. And Judas was the one to do it. And Satan used him in all of this. Sadly, it's been said, every man has his price. It's true. I think we all have a price. We can be pushed to the edge of that. What's yours? Is there a price? Even believers are challenged with this, you know. Even believers were challenged to leave Jesus. I know people who have been disappointed by their circumstances and they're disappointed with God. God, I prayed. They feel like, God, you didn't come through in the way I wanted. I prayed. I asked. I'm out. Some are disillusioned by the people in the church. Ah, I got so hurt by that person. You know, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to come back. They blame 
God and turn away from God. And I'm not saying the hurt isn't bad if you feel it. But sometimes just that, they say, oh, I'm out of here. Sometimes we trade in Jesus for what? Money? For our careers? Ah, I got to make my money. Ah, I'll come back, Jesus, when, 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 when I have my bank account, when I'm retired, when I have my retirement. Sometimes we, we trade it in for our career. Well, I can't do it. I got to build my career. I got, I got to establish this. Sometimes it's a person, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Ah, oh, Lord, I, I, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship. Oh, but I really love them. And, you know, I, I need someone. And sometimes... They betray their own faith to be with someone. What's your price? Maybe it's not to feel pain. Pain is hard, being hurt. So you, you want to run away. What's your price? What, 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 where are you? Yeah, what what, what are, would you do to sell out Jesus? I heard about a famous author at a New York dinner party at this high-class hotel, and sitting next to him was a beautiful woman, and a man asked her, would you spend a night with me for $100,000? And the woman blushes and says, yes. The man then asked her, well, would you spend a night with me for $10? And the woman said, what do you think I am? And the man replies, well, we've already established that. We're just haggling on the price. What's your price? Yeah? You know what? We shouldn't have any. Yeah? Our commitment to Jesus should be solid no matter what. Well, even this plotting was a sovereign arrangement that God allowed. So we see the Passover, the plotting, and now let's go to number three, the preparation. The preparation. Now, this is our last section from verse 7 through 13. But first, take a look at verse 7 through 9. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. Now stop right that moment. So the day of the Unleavened bread, or really, it, all of this is, is just saying Passover, basically. This whole Passover, the day of Passover, was here. And it was, it was time now, verse 7, for the, the, the meal to be made, for a lamb to be sacrificed. You take the lamb to the temple to be a sacrifice and roasted, and you take that back home, and you have the Passover meal in, in commemoration here. So... That day had come, and that day is actually Thursday of Jesus' last week. On Friday, he's going to put up on a cross, so this is Thursday. So Jesus, he sends for Peter and John, and he tells them, go and prepare the Passover meal, basically, for us, 
that we made it for, 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 for our group, for the disciples here. This was the Lord's Supper we talked about, that last supper that he was to have with the disciples. And so they said, well, well where, where, where do you want to do this? I mean, um, where, where will you have us prepare it? Now, you think about this. Remember, Josephus, Josephus said there's like a million people in this small city of Jerusalem, and so it's packed. It's hard to find anywhere to do this. I mean, these guys got to go to the temple, take the lamb, sacrifice, get it roasted, come back. They got to get unleavened bread, the, the wine, the bitter herbs, apples, dates, cinnamon for the thick sauce that the bread was dipped in. There's a lot of things in preparation, and let alone find a place that they were to do that. Well, where are we going to go, Jesus? So Jesus tells them in verse 10, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now understand, this is very unusual, this servant, basically, of the master. He's carrying a jar of water because usually it was women who would carry this jar of water. So it would be pretty easy to spot this guy. So Jesus, in his omniscience and in his sovereign arrangement, knows, hey, you're going to see this man carrying a jar of water. Well, you know what? Follow him, verse 10. Follow him to this house and that he enters. And when you get to that house, now talk to the master of that house and say, hey, the teacher says, uh, where's the guest room that he may eat the Passover with the disciples? So Jesus instructs the Peter and John, hey, ask the master, hey, where's the guest room? that Because um, Jesus, Jesus is in need of it, that that we can have the Passover meal with all the disciples. And so this man, Jesus tells him, he's going to show you, verse 12, this large upper room. And it's all furnished. Tables, everything. You don't have to get anything. And um, uh, the, the room has its the table and everything. And so uh, and prepare everything to all happen there. The meal would happen there. Get it ready there. Isn't this crazy? Perhaps the the guy, the master, was already a follower of Jesus, and and maybe God, the Holy Spirit, was putting it on his heart already to get all of this ready. And then, can you imagine the guys come and say, "Hey, Jesus wants to use it." Oh yeah, yeah, I knew it, I knew it. That's why it's all ready, you know that kind of thing. Now, this upper room is traditionally uh, that's what we call the upper room, uh, Mark's parents' house, where. Um, in Acts 1, all the disciples were praying in and where Jesus met. So I remember when I went to Israel, uh, we went to a place that was traditionally looked as the upper room. I remember we had communion in there and it was pretty heavy. So Jesus already, already had it all planned out. Now, just to understand something, know that Jesus was crucified and died on 3 p.m., on Friday. And it was at that moment, usually from 3 p.m. to sunset, thousands of Passover lambs were being sacrificed at that time, all in preparation for actually a Passover meal that evening. So the question really comes up is, didn't Jesus and the disciples celebrate Passover the day before on Thursday? Yet Jesus died on Friday. Well, the answer is at that time, 
uh, the northern Jews, like Jesus and the disciples who were from Galilee, looked at uh, when the, the actual Passover time differently from the southern Jews. You see, the northern Jews saw the day start, Passover start from uh, sunrise and then sunrise the next day. Where the southern Jews saw the day start from sun, sunset and then at sunset the next day. So, Jesus and the disciples were from that northern Galilee region. For them, Passover started on Thursday at sunrise, and basically that, that holiday ended on the next day, Friday. And so they had their Passover meal Thursday night with the sacrificed lamb on Thursday night. Uh, well, the southern Jerusalem guys, you could say, their Passover started Thursday at sunset, and and they would then take the sacrificed lamb from on Friday and have the Passover meal Friday night. Now, this actually would help ease the crowded conditions to have Passover actually celebrated on two days because all the lambs that were needed. Uh, for the Passover meal and the sacrifices would be dispersed in two days rather than having it all in one day. All right. But either way, this shows that even with the uh, evil plotting, Jesus still had everything all under control. Understand that. Even with the evil plotting, Jesus still had everything all under control. Their control. He had a place for Passover meal. He had it all set up. He he knew the exact house and how to find that house. And even though uh, Judas is trying to figure out, you know, when to catch Jesus, notice it was Peter and John, right, that were sent to do this. Not not Judas. So really, none of the disciples knew. This wasn't the first time that Jesus and the disciples had Passover meal in Jerusalem, but this time. I'm sure it was a different place than that, what they had before. Uh, uh, and, and really, Jesus did more like a secret so that uh, Judas um, wouldn't know until last minute that they were having Passover meal because this was important. In the book of John, uh, we see so much, and we'll see in Luke, that Jesus passes on to the disciples during this time. And so Jesus... Uh, Judas, he couldn't give Judas an opportunity to pre-plan this betrayal and arrest there and have Jesus captured. So even with the evil plotting going on, Jesus still had everything all under control. So understand this. No matter how crazy your situation may be, no matter threatened with things, no matter it's even demonic Attacks and situation, no matter how crazy it is, God is already two steps ahead. It's not great to know. Jesus still had everything all under control. So, so no matter what, God is still two steps ahead. All right, let's go to our last verse. It says. And they went and found it, just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. I like this. I like, I mean, I, I circle, they went, in verse 13, yeah? They went. They, they didn't, like, protest to 
Jesus, you know, and say, are you sure, Jesus? Wait, uh, uh, huh? That sounds crazy, yeah? They didn't complain. They did not doubt Jesus at all. But they went. They obeyed Jesus. And when they obeyed, they went and Look what it says. They found it just as Jesus had told them. Exactly what Jesus had told them. I love that. What Jesus says is true. What Jesus says, his word is true. And for a fact, if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If he promises something, he's going to do it. And so they found just as he had told them. And so they were able to prepare make preparations for the Passover, which was so important on this last night that Jesus would spend with his disciples. Remember, that's where communion came into play. When Jesus took Passover and transformed it, changed it into communion as a memorial, as a commemoration for what he's going to do in dying on the cross. So think about this. Peter and John obediently went, and you know what happened? They experienced the miracle. They experienced the miracle. So here's this last point. Their obedience brings the personal experience of God's powerful providence. Did you see that? Their obedience. They went. And you know what? It brings the personal experience of God's powerful providence. You experience God moving, that miracle of God working as you trust God, as you, you, you step in faith and obedience to what He's asking you to do. God meets you and you see it all unfold in front of you what God had been sovereignly arranging all this time. So their obedience brings the personal experience of God's powerful providence. John Blanchard simply said, obedience changes things. I love that. Obedience changes things. You know what? You will find your life change when you obey what God tells you to do. I, I know sometimes that's hard. Sometimes we, we feel like, oh, I don't want to be fake and, you know, I... I don't want to just do some ritual like before, you know. But understand that we're, we're battling something inside. Our sinful flesh, uh, uh, it still wants to dictate things, yeah, and what, what it wants us to do. So be careful that we don't totally go with what we feel, yeah. But understand who you are in Christ. See, our faith in the truth in Jesus Christ, and, and when he saves us, that, that we are new creations in Christ. We are new. We're brand new. We're a new person. And that old sinful man, that old sinful person is dead in God, and no longer are we in bondage to that. So we are to live out that new person now. And the Bible tells us what that person is, what that person is like, and what that person is to do and be. So sometimes in our battle with our sinful flesh, just pure obedience is needed. Because your flesh is like, ah, I don't feel it. I don't want to do it. Yeah. 
But in faith, we step out in our new person and be who God wants us to be by being obedient to what He wants us to do. And when you do that, you find the power of God. You know what you find? You find the miracle of living out the new person. So step out. Obey what God says. Not what your sinful logic is trying, trying, trying to tell you to do. Yeah, sometimes we want to be real. We don't, you know, we, we don't want to just live a ritual. And some of you guys come from a life of rituals. And now you found Christ and you want to be real. But, but when it comes to this struggle with our sinful flesh, you know what? You know what I say? The best thing to do is obey what the Word of God says in pure obedience and do it because you want to honor God. You see, when we live a ritual, we're not really wanting to honor God. We just, we're just doing it to do it. But when we really, in obedience, say, Okay, God, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to do this. Be that new person. Be what you want me to be. Do what you want me to be. You know what? I'm going to do it to honor you, God. Honor you. To glorify you. Because I know this is what you want me to do. Then that's different. That makes it different. Nate Saint, one of the five missionaries who was killed by the Alca Indians in Ecuador uh, back in the 60s, you know, he said his life did not change until he came to grasp this idea. And listen to what he said. Obedience is not a momentary option. It is a die-cast decision made beforehand. I love that. Yeah. It's a choice we make. It's a decision we make beforehand to follow God, to do what He wants. Not be wishy-washy about it. But to say, God, I'm going to live this new person. I'm going to be that person. And no matter how I feel, no matter what I see, God, I want to trust in You. So stay faithful. Stay obedient. You know when things don't look so good? When things seem to be falling apart, stay faithful in that new person. Keep trusting in that new person. Even if you can't see it, hold on to God that He's doing something. He's working something out. I'll close with this. This um, Chinese man uh, lived on the Mongolian border. There's a lot of conflict and trouble going on uh, way back. And one day, his favorite horse, a beautiful white horse, jumped the fence. This Marin was seized, taken by the other side, by the enemy on the other side. His friends came to comfort him and said, We're so sorry about your horse. And they said, that, that's, such, that's so bad news. And the man's like, How do you know it's bad news? It might be good news. A week later, the man looked out his window to see his horse returning, and alongside her was this beautiful stallion. He put, he put both horses into the stable, and his friends came to see oh, what was going on and saw the, the new horse, and they said, oh, what a beautiful horse. They said, that's good news. Well, the man's like, how do you know it's good news? It might be bad news. The next day, the man's only son decided to try riding the stallion. But the stallion threw him off. He landed 
uh, on his leg, break, painfully breaking his leg. And the friends came by and, and vi- to visit him and said, Oh, we're so sorry about this. Oh, that, that, that's such bad news. Well, how do you know it's bad news? Replied the man. It might be good news. Within a month, a war broke out between China and Mongolia. Uh, the, the government came, the recruiters came through the area, pressing all the young Chinese men into the army. And, and they all, each and every one of them, went into the army and died. Except this man's son, who couldn't go off the war because of his broken leg. You see, the man told his friends, the things you considered good were actually bad, and the things that seemed to be bad news were actually for our good. Well, that's what we see here. Yeah. What looks bad for Jesus, what looks bad in this betrayal and plotting going on, what looks bad was actually God working. And God is working in your life. Hold on to that tonight. Hold on to that. Get back to that, you guys. To look at who God is. That He's still there in His sovereign arrangements. Let's pray. Oh my Lord, it's hard. Things in life, things that happen, hopes and dreams that maybe don't come true, when things don't go smooth and it seems like there's a lot of rough roads that are happening. God, it's hard. Lord, it's hard not to give up, to, to be overwhelmed with things, Lord, to, for fear to come in, for worry to come upon us, to be stressed out, sleepless nights, Lord, to struggle through just to get through a day, But God, we're reminded that no matter what's going on, that you are there. And so, Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to go to you. Help us to come, God, and and, and to, to give our attention and our heart to who you are and what we're learning tonight and what we've learned. Lord, you're sovereign. And in your providence and arrangement, God, you're working and in the middle of it all. Lord, we can experience a miracle. So, Lord, save us from ourselves, Lord. Give us a vision of you even right now. And help us to trust you, Lord. Trust you alone. With all of our being, God, may we embrace you. And with all of our being, grab onto you. With all of our being, trust you, for you are our sovereign God. And Lord, we know you love us. And we know you care for us. For as we're seeing here, Jesus, it was all planned for you to die for us. To save us from our sins so we can be your children, so you can work in our lives. So Jesus, help us, Lord, to have faith and trust in you tonight. You are our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.